0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: It's the grand finale, our final Beck's U.S. Farm Report college roadshow from fighting Illini territory. We have a lot in store over the next 60 minutes from right here at the University of Illinois. Pavement and fuel powered by pig manure?
2: This whole process is uh, goes through the reactor in half an hour to an hour's time.
1: A researcher helping winter wheat gain ground right here in Illinois. We're making wheat more profitable for growers. Drowned out fields to historic heat.
3: I think there's gonna be some, some phenomenal cotton this year. And we're also gonna have some stuff that's, that's fairly disappointing.
1: A peek at cotton harvest in Georgia. And in John's world.
0: Harvest homestretch. The 2023 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Illinois is brought to you exclusively by Beck's. From farmers' first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Beck's Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at beckshybrids.com.
1: Now for the news, a big report week from USDA as harvest nears an end. First, the agency releasing its latest supply and demand numbers. USDA making a larger than expected adjustment to the national corn yield, raising it by nearly two bushels per acre from the October report. The national yield estimate is now at 174.9 bushels per acre. USDA also increasing the soybean yield forecast just by 0.3 bushels per acre to 49.9 bushels per acre. And the cotton yield forecast also seeing an increase. The agency pegging the national cotton yield at 793 pounds per acre, up 16 pounds from last month. Matt Bennett of AgMarket.net says while that big of an increase in corn yield isn't typical for this time of year, ending stocks did not rise as much as expected since USDA also boosted demand.
4: Corn demand going up 125 million bushels wasn't necessarily what I thought was going to happen. Feed and residual usage up 50 seems a little steep to me, quite frankly. Uh, exports up as well you know you've got ethanol up and so um, all of those seem to be maybe a little bit more than what I thought it's almost like they wanted to keep the balance sheet from changing a whole lot as far as the bottom line is concerned.
1: Bennett says it was less of a story in soybeans USDA did make that small increase to yield and production but the agency did not touch demand now the big question is whether the South American weather situation can continue to cause such volatility in the soybean market. <laughs> While harvest is wrapping up in many parts of the country, that's not the case in Michigan. The harvest pace there is lagging well behind normal and last year and this fall as we found out in this week's I-80 Harvest Stop.
0: The I-80 Harvest Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Case IH. The Farmall has been an iconic partner on the farm for generations. Come celebrate a century of Farmall the one for all with us at farmall100.com and by agi at agi we spend a lot of time focused on product details making sure you can store your grain how you need to and move it when you need to learn more at aggrowth.com
1: the growing season was wet in main row crop production areas of the state that's extended into the fall as rains have been keeping farmers out of the field Corn harvest is only 40% complete. That's 14 points behind the five year average and 18 points behind last year. The corn is also wet, so farmers either have to wait for the corn to dry in the field or they're putting it through the grain dryer, which is causing bottlenecks.
5: We didn't expect the wet weather because we have been, we work a day or the farmers work a day, then we sit for five days. So it's been a tough fall. We're just getting into corn. Moisture's coming in at 22 to 28. Normally, this time of year, we'd be looking at 19 20% corn and we'd be wrapping up, but we're, we're behind.
1: Soybean harvest in Michigan is 70% complete, which is just four points behind normal, but 17 points slower than 2022. Lang Mack says corn yields are averaging around 165 to 170 bushels per acre in his area. Soybean yields, those are variable, ranging anywhere from 35 to 75 bushels per acre. And in another important decision that could help lower the price on some fertilizers, the U.S. Commerce Department announcing its lowering duties placed on phosphate fertilizers imported from Morocco, they would move from almost 20% down to just over 2%. The tariffs started in 2021 after a petition from Mosaic to impose duties on phosphate imported from Morocco and Russia. Mosaic had claimed that unfairly subsidized foreign companies were flooding the US market with cheap fertilizer. It says it's disappointed by the ruling and is considering its next steps. Syngenta says it's investigating the next steps in response to Arkansas ordering a divestiture of 160 acres of farmland in the state due to foreign ownership. Last month, as we first told you, Arkansas's Attorney General gave Northrop King Seed Company two years to sell its farmland owned in Craighead County. It comes after the state legislature passed a law that restricts certain foreign party-controlled businesses from having private land in Arkansas. Northrop is a division of Syngenta Seeds, which is owned by Kim China, which is a Chinese state-owned company. The head of Syngenta North America telling Farm Journal's Clinton Griffiths that nothing illegal has taken place on that farm, and they're still working on next steps.
6: Will this require Syngenta to sell that farm? We're working through that right now with, uh, with the government officials. And so we're we're putting the right plans in place to be able to have options uh, to help serve farmers based upon whatever the outcome is gonna be. The EPA and the USDA many times require us to do work and permitting right in the same state as we're gonna sell product. So one of the first things we have to make sure that we figure out here is how do we work with the local community to make sure that we're still getting uh, products tested in their backyard so that we have the ability to be able to sell those products.
1: According to USDA, roughly 380,000 acres in the U.S. are owned by Chinese businesses or investors, or less than 1% of total foreign-owned farmland. That's it for the news. What a warm-up across the country this week. We'll have a check of your weather coming up next. Your next
7: piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the
0: country to find what you're looking for. Only on machinerypeat.com. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. Take advantage of our special 3.9% low-rate retail finance program. Get 3.9% financing for 48 months on qualifying H&S equipment through the end of 2023. See your local dealer for more info.
1: What a warm up that hit the country this week, record temperatures in many places, including here in Champaign. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us now with weather. Matt, is this a sign of El Nino in the northern hemisphere?
8: Yeah, Tyne, that's something that we're going to be covering the the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months, uh, the impacts of El Nino on the global circulation, but more importantly on uh, our jet stream. Uh, To answer the question, starting to see the influences in and across the United States already at this point with El Nino and you want to look right down here with the Gulf of Mexico. The jet stream is going to be as we'll see in a second. uh, there's going to be a ridge that develops back over the United States. And because of uh, El Nino and the things slowly coming together, uh, we're going to wrap in some subtropical moisture back into Louisiana and the southeast. So those are kind of the initial hints of it. A dry across a good portion of the United States because of that ridge. Let's go take a look at what we have with the temperature. Outlook, you got above average temperatures across the board except LA. They're on the left coast, the west coast. You got temperatures down below normal, but 14th through the 18th. Yeah, they're just almost going to be one of those situations where we saw something similar in the summer with the ridge high pressure and a blocking pattern setting up. Remember in the summer when we talk about blocking patterns, it takes a while for them to break down. That's why we have an extended trend of above average warmth. Back to what we're looking at with the precipitation. So this is November 14th through the 18th. Much like summer, where that ridge develops, things remain pretty dry. We may hint at some moisture coming in through the southeast, but where that pocket of cool air is located right at the base of what's called a trough is where those cooler temperatures are going to be and the wetter-than-normal conditions right over Southern California Going through November 14th through the 18th, what's going on with the jet stream? So again, uh, this has some impacts, or at least we're starting to see the signs of El Nino in the jet stream with this blocking pattern setting up a big ridge up over the United States Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, uh, with a low pressure system developing back off onto the west coast by. Thursday, Friday, a lot of this energy is going to go to the north rather than kick this ridge out. So that's going to keep this pattern around a little bit longer into Friday, Saturday and Sunday and the weekend. Otherwise, next storm system, start to see it there with that U working across Texas and
1: Oklahoma. Thanks, Matt. Well, when we come back, what's really fueling soybean prices? Our marketing discussion is from the University of Illinois this week. And after the break, we're heading to the historic University of Illinois Stock Pavilion. Early next year, it will be dedicated as the Dr. Doug Parrott Memorial Arena. Dr. Parrott's career spanned 49 years empowering cattle producers and improving beef quality around the planet. He was considered a teaching icon and the legendary livestock judging coach here. What a career he had and a fitting tribute to a man who dedicated his career to helping producers. Dr. Parrott died unexpectedly in August of 2022. He was 71. Welcome back to the University of Illinois this week. Excited for a marketing discussion. We have a lot to talk about from Farm Bill to Brazil to renewable diesel. So much with Scott Irwin, Joe Jensen, as well as Jonathan Koppis. But but Scott, I want to start with you because as you look right now at this renewable diesel picture, there was a lot of hype about it. But it seems like it has been so slow, though, to come online. Is this what you expected?
5: Um, I think that the um, initial Ramp up in renewable diesel capacity has basically followed script, Uh, but in some sense that's the problem. Time the entire expansion and boom in renewable diesel has kind of gotten out over its skis relative to the demand levels that are set by the uh, EPA with our annual RBOs with the RFS, and so. That's really what is going on right now is what I call kind of a reckoning and a rationalization of, all right, how much capacity do we really need compared to what those mandates set?
1: But is renewable diesel demand today, is some of that underpinning some of the price action that we've seen specifically for soybean?
5: Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that it has continued to support soybean oil prices and therefore soybean prices. uh but not nearly at the level that it was supporting soybean oil prices, uh, say, a year from now, a, a year ago.
1: Talking about soybean prices, I mean, Joe, it has been impressive to watch soybean prices as of late. Do you think this is truly a supply-driven rally based on what we're seeing in Brazil?
9: I think that's a big part of the story. Uh, I, I think this, the last two weeks, this big rally that we've seen in soybean prices has kind of taken everyone a little bit by surprise to some degree. Just the strength of that rally... In light of what I think we just, you know, is still sort of like caution about what the size of that South American crop is. The only thing that I would say that kind of the point of maybe where we kind of need to think, uh, you know, rationalize that a little bit is to say, well, what is the overall South American crop going to look like? And we know that Argentina is going to produce more than they did in what was a tremendous drought in 2022.
1: So and then this week, I mean, we had some impressive soybean demand sales also on the books. China buying 15.9 million bushels of soybeans. That was reported on Thursday. Is that because China's not able to get that crop from Brazil right now? Or, you know, what is driving those those, those big sales? I think
9: a, a little bit of that, but more just that China needs to source so much beans from the U.S. in general to kind of meet its overall needs. And this year, relative to past years, they've been a little bit more hand to mouth. So they haven't really put a lot of those sales on the books early. And we're putting them on the books now kind of as we go, which is good. But overall, maybe, you know, Chinese export demand is not as large as as what we've seen in the last couple of
1: years. But well, we are expecting a big crop out of South America, but that can be hard to forecast. It's also hard to forecast what's going on in Washington. <laughs> Jonathan, as you look at the farm bill right now, some talk that we possibly could see some movement on an extension of the current farm bill. Is that the likely scenario at this point?
6: It's the most likely scenario out there, given we have a very short legislative calendar left in the year. And so we are, you know, we're kind of up against the December 31st deadline when the dairy policy could revert back to permanent law or 1949 act uh, kind of madness type policy. Uh, So you got to see Congress get something done and the ability to move through both committees, both chambers, conference, and get it back through the Congress in this short timeframe is nearly impossible. We still haven't funded the federal government for a year. We still haven't figured out some of the emergency supplemental spending needs. So there's a lot to pack into a very short amount of legislative time.
1: But considering the current farm bill today is an extension, would that be okay for U.S. agriculture and farmers and ranchers?
6: Yeah, I mean, we've this farm bill's been in place for five years and we've seen it operate. Uh, in fact, uh, what we're looking at um, with some of the debate around in- increasing price triggers for payments most of those are set to increase anyway, so extending it another year will will basically incorporate that increase um, into the next year. And and that there's some certainty around that, even if there's uncertainty over the longer five-year time frame. It is the status quo is what we're used to.
1: Yeah, well, there is some debate about reference price, so we want to get into that, um, and, and some debate about long-term outlook for prices, what that looks like. We're going to cover it all, but first we need to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Brandt, technology-driven nutrition that feeds your crop.
1: Well, I saw several combines still rolling in fields on the drive over to Illinois this week, but also a lot of fall field work taking place. And just an hour from here in Champaign is where you'll find John Phipps' farm, where harvest is still underway.
7: No charts and graphs this week, I'm afraid. In fact, if the elevator didn't open till noon on Sunday today, when I usually tape the show for the following weekend, I'm not sure I would have gotten this one done. I talked a few weeks ago about how the corn seemed to stop drying down around 18-19%, although it was really just taking its time, I guess. Those 30-acre days while we waited somewhat patiently in line soaked up a lot of October though in phase one of harvest I spend way too much thought on how long it's going to take us to finish at our current speed it also I also fuss about the yields this year was more complicated by more acres thanks to some new rented ground it wasn't a huge step but it added to the useful useless fretting for me about getting done I am now in the second phase, which is characterized with less obsession with yield on the combine readout than acres left. Besides at this point, the yield becomes more fixed every minute. It's hard to raise the farm average right now. It's like trying to raise your batting average after the all-star break. The elevators have opened up with fewer people needing drying and more farmers finished. I assume every day in my truck we're getting some big days in and I'm entering phase three, the home stretch, calculating the strength of the light at the end of the tunnel. We could be done by next Monday, Tuesday at the latest I think as I commute between field and elevator. I'm really not complaining, just coming to grips with the fact that harvest at the age of 75 takes a different mental strength than it did at 45 which leads to the point that a few of you might find helpful. If you are a certain age and considering retiring, but luckily have the chance to still help out on the farm with your family, it may be a different experience than you imagine. Even though I'm just another landowner, harvest for many of us will seem exact to exact the same emotional cost as it always has. It feels like previous harvests when I was totally responsible for getting things done. Looking back, I now realize it's no wonder my father moved to Florida after retiring.
1: Thanks, John. We're also on the home stretch of College Roadshow this week, but first, a tractor tales with machinery Pete. That's next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Tyrannus, moving the acre forward. Every acre tells a story. Find yours at acreforward.com. That's acreforward.com. Hey
7: folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're gonna travel to North Central Illinois to check out a Minneapolis Moline that still does work on the farm.
10: I got a 1950 U, my dad sold brand new. He was a mini dealer. And the uh, farmer retired about 10 miles north of here. When uh, the sale came up, I come, went up and bought it. and Drove it home 10 miles in the winter time. <laughs> then I put a different motor in it so I could pull it. Had a lot of fun with it. Well, it did everything to the motor and then they had put wheelie bars on it and all that stuff, you know. So my nephew painted it for me. He's a, like I said, he's a body man. Oh, I'll go to Anna when they have a show and they have a show here in Atkinson and Hoop Hole. Oh, we're in rock country. There's a lot of old farmers around here that know, know a lot of stuff about them, you know. They just look at them and enjoy it like I do. They running about uh, six, seven mile an hour in fourth gear and 18, I suppose, in high. Just my buddy, I just drive it around. If I want to pull a tree out or something with it, I use it, you know. It ain't leaving. <laughs> when I die, they can do with what they want to, but not till then.
1: When we come back, from converting pig manure to pavement, to uncovering wheat varieties that could dominate for double cropping systems across Illinois and the US, we have so much to cover from right here at the University of Illinois, as our College Roadshow continues. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely,
0: tradition.
1: Well, according to USDA's June Acreage Report, winter wheat acres here in Illinois shot up a whopping 32% this year, and harvested acres were projected to be 39% higher than last year. But for researchers here at University of Illinois, they're working to make wheat more competitive on farms across the state. When you think of farming in Illinois, you more than likely think of this. Prime farmland for growing
11: corn and soybeans, not necessarily wheat. I think the biggest misconception is that Illinois doesn't grow, you know, good wheat here. We don't have, we're not a good wheat-producing state. I think that's a huge misconception because our yields in the state are way above the national average. These wheat
1: fields are Jessica Rakowski's office where her research focuses on developing wheat
11: varieties adapted to Illinois and surrounding states. We're making wheat more profitable for growers. That's what I select for when I'm selecting lines to advance or new parents.
1: The researchers are also working to find wheat varieties
11: that mature quicker making it a prime candidate for farmers who double crop with wheat. And so all those factors help improve the overall profitability of wheat in the state, especially because 80% of the wheat is grown in the double crop system here in Illinois. She says the longer wheat can put on biomass and fill grain, the more it can potentially yield. But with their breeding projects, they're always looking for the exceptions to that rule. We're always looking for the ones that break the mold. And sometimes we find those and that is what is most exciting. You know, when you find something that's really high yielding and then also tends to be early, um, that is really ultimately what we're trying to find.
1: She says by sorting through 20 years of data generated from this breeding program, researchers have unearthed some interesting facts, including that yields have increased by half a bushel per year, and test weights have also increased, but the days it takes for the crop to mature have stayed the same.
11: This gives us a lot of hope because we know that with the technology we have today, we can do this a lot faster. The progress is
1: now happening at a faster pace, as Rutkowski says they're using speed breeding techniques. She says the other thing they're doing is implementing genomic selection, which allows the researchers to use marker data across the genome to predict performance.
11: We don't have these lines anywhere else except in this field. So, but through prediction, we can predict how they would perform in 20 different environments and use that to make decisions.
1: By using different criteria to look for new varieties that hold promise and potential, the research here is one that could bring new wheat varieties that can be harvested earlier without sacrificing yield.
11: I uncover new things every year with um, just identifying these new lines that have these kind of unique combination of traits. So, you know, we've got some really interesting material coming through that has, looks really promising in terms of its ability to yield well, but also be early. All right, when we come back,
1: are corn prices today too cheap? That's what we ask our economists from the University of Illinois as our College Roadshow continues after the break. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report from here at the University of Illinois. A beautiful fall day outside. Who would have thought we would see some of these record temps, which is, you know, we planned on this time of year moving things inside because the weather is so unpredictable. But speaking of the weather being unpredictable, El Nino, talking about that really coming into play, what does that mean for production in South America? What does that mean for production in North America? Do you have any good analog years to compare it to?
5: Well, I get describe myself as a bit of a El Nino, La Nina skeptic. I've been chasing those impacts in the grain markets for most of my career, and uh, they're just not as reliable as people would wish them to be. There's still, I think, some tendencies that we can point to. So uh, with uh, El Nino this winter, the U.S. Corn Belt will likely be a, a, a little drier and warmer Maybe that's some of what we're seeing now. South America, uh, the El Nino can be associated with higher rainfall like you're seeing in parts of Brazil. Uh, But overall, um, I don't find it to be a a great impact, maybe small.
1: Heading into next year, though, you look at the corn stocks picture and the scenario that we're setting on today. Do you think at this point, based on that, corn prices are too cheap?
9: Not really. In a world where we have 2 billion bushel carryout and sort of nothing that would lead us to think that we're going to draw those stocks down in a meaningful way in a one to two year time horizon, uh, that's a scenario where we have what we've seen over the last few months, which is corn prices kind of bumping along in a pretty limited range at you know what are now, I think we can sort of say historically low prices, given sort of what we've observed in the last three to five years.
1: So this year, though, when you look at harvest, I mean, I know it's winding down for some, but, but it's, it's slugg- you kind of sluggish for others. Does it pay to store grain in 2023?
9: Uh, it can. I think farmers really need to think specifically about their individual situation because storage costs do vary a lot. We've done a lot of work on benchmarking, farm marketing, and farms inventory and storage performance. We're doing that work with in association with the Illinois Farm Business Farm Management Association. They're great partners in sort of Connecting us with farm level records and farm level data, um, what we found is that like those costs vary a lot across farms. Some farms, you know, if you're in a situation where you know you're not sort of financially constrained, you've got access to relatively cheap capital, your balance sheet looks good, and storage can really pay. Now, what we're seeing in the market are carries that are pretty, you know, limited. I mean, th- that might pay for some, but not not others. Especially if you think about interest costs being, say. You know, going out to March, maybe 15 cents a bushel for corn more than that for soybeans.
1: Jonathan, going back to the Farm Bill discussion, the biggest sticking point has been this this reference price and raising the reference price. So are you in the camp that across the board we do need to find, I mean, what's the price tag right now that some are throwing out in order to raise reference prices?
6: Well... we don't know exactly. Uh, we're in probably a range between 20 and $50 billion, the way the Congressional Budget Office scores it, which you have to remember is a 10-year cost. So it is a huge number because you're dealing with 10 years in, in a lot of acres, particularly for crops like corn and soybeans and wheat.
1: $50 billion is what you just what that's you said. Up to $50 billion.
6: That's what was in the news stories recently, that, that the proposal they were looking to cover was about a $50 billion cost.
1: Do you think that's needed in the next form bill?
6: Well, I think one of the things I struggle with uh, that I think is a real puzzle on this is most of the acres and many of the crops are going to see a reference price increase because of the way the program was redesigned in 2018. So these these last few years of high prices, so corn, soybeans, wheat, those are going to get pulled up anyway automatically. And so for this to be the sticking point, I think it's only one of them. It's the kind of internal and the committee sticking point, um, is a bit puzzling, to say the least, when, when we can see that automatic increase happening with the current design of the program. So why fight over this this extraordinarily expensive change that doesn't seem to have the need in many of the crops for most of the acres in the country?
1: And when you look at some of those price outlooks, I mean, we're talking about, you know, if we don't see a farm bill until late 2024, a new farm bill, or 2025, what do commodity prices look like at that time? But you recently done some adjustments to long-term price outlooks kind of what are your forecasts right now Scott
5: well uh, Daryl good and I took a look at this all the way back in 2007 2008 and made some projections bravely back then and uh, they've turned out to uh, actually be pretty solid so um, we projected long-run average price of corn in Illinois of 460 and eleven dollars for soybeans 15 years ago and I don't think we would change those. Uh, today. Um, So um, I think that that's a good planning base, but you always have to remember that history shows that you can go a long time above those averages and you can go a long time below them. I mean, the four and five years above or below is not unusual.
1: Yeah, really good reminder. All right. Well, three of you, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We really appreciate it. All right. Stay with us. We'll have much more on U.S. Farm Report when we come back. The U.S. and the European Union, along with more than 100 countries, have made a pledge to collectively reduce methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030. While fossil fuels are responsible for the majority of those emissions, the livestock industry also faces a tall task. And researchers here want to make sure what may be right for the environment is also right for cattle. Headline after headline, methane emissions from cows are a growing point of contention.
4: 90 uh, plus percent of the methane that comes from ruminants is all going to be eruptated. Um, and so that's going to come out in a belch. Uh, and so that's where it's all coming out the front end.
1: Those emissions come from fermentation.
4: All the fermentations on the front end.
1: Which is actually an important part of how cattle digest what they're eating.
4: Methane is really an important end product of rumen fermentation. It actually removes Um, hydrogen ions and so that helps fermentation continue. So while it's good for the bacteria, it's not necessarily great from the animal standpoint because it's just a loss of energy. And so with that, we're trying to reduce that while still um, proceeding with ruminal fermentation and helping the animals continue to grow.
1: Josh McCann, an assistant professor here in the Animal Science Department at the University of Illinois, along with U of I's Dr. Rod Mackey, are leading the charge to reduce methane emissions from ruminants like beef and dairy cattle.
4: What we're working on is we're trying to make sure the hydrogen that gets can kind of accumulate when we're reducing methane, that we can capture that hydrogen for productive purposes um, and to help animals grow faster and be more productive.
1: Through a three year, $3.2 million project, University of Illinois researchers, along with an international team, are trying to uncover answers to not only help reduce the emissions, but also help boost production in cattle.
4: We have a lot of feed additives that are getting developed now that are being developed to reduce methane. The problem with those is they don't really have any animal benefits.
1: By optimizing the fermentation that happens within a cattle's stomach, the researchers want to find out if an improvement in fermentation can also help animals grow faster and be more productive.
4: We can model that here in the lab with our kind of glass fermenters that we call, so essentially a function like the stomach or a miniature stomach that that cattle have, where they do all the same normal processes of fermentation. So we have the microorganisms and they'll digest the feed particles just like they would in the stomach of a sear.
1: McCann says there are several approaches the researchers are taking to improve the fermentation process.
4: In essence, we're trying to understand how can we um, orient, you know, the different bacteria here within the rumen to capture that hydrogen. Um, so that hydrogen gets captured into volatile fatty acids. Those volatile fatty acids are then the primary energy source for the ruminant animal.
1: With the first phase of the grant focusing on understanding the fermentation pathways happening inside the rumen, to the next phase of moving into more experiments, researchers hope what they uncover here will ultimately fuel improvements around the globe.
4: We want to bridge the gap of knowledge where we, we kind of now understand how we can reduce methane But we want to unlock that gap that's going to allow that to translate to a benefit on the farm for producers and in animal performance so we can continue to raise livestock in a sustainable and effective way as a great source of food.
1: Well, what's the possibility of turning pig waste or manure into pavement? It's not only possible, it could be just a start. We'll tell you why next. Researchers here don't see pig manure as waste. Instead, it could fuel products people use or drive on every day. You may look at pig manure as waste, but to researchers here at the University of Illinois, pig manure can be the fuel for so much more.
2: My research focuses on converting bio-waste into the uh, bio-crude oil and then process it into uh, value-added Product, such as transportation, transportation fuels.
1: The bio waste John taps into is anything from pig manure to food waste to even algae blooms. And it's those products that have the potential to be turned into fuel, plastics and pavement.
2: I called it environmental enhancing energy. We are uh, protecting the environment by converting the bio waste.
1: It may seem like a wild and complicated idea, but for this researcher, it's really straightforward. John says with traditional biofuels, the bio waste is buried underneath the ground and it can take millions of years to become fossil fuels. But through their process, it actually happens in a matter of minutes.
2: This whole process is uh, go through the reactor in half an hour to an hour's time and uh, job done, which is similar again to the neutral process of petroleum, crude oil.
1: The researchers have found after some pretreatment, what they are producing is very similar to actual crude oil.
2: Then it's under a high temperature, high pressure. It's more like a high pressure cooker. And then during this process, it's a, a kind of expedite uh, expedited uh, process. In half an hour or so, then there's bio waste through this uh, depolymerization process, so then we got the crude oil. Uh, similar to what's the petroleum crude oil.
1: Data shows 89% of people's daily lives deals with petroleum-derived materials, and forecasts show at some point that resource could run out. But the product they're producing here at the University of Illinois is a renewable option.
2: So In three years, we will demonstrate uh, the uh, pavement using the biobinders binders generated from swine manure and uh, also the food waste for the road pavement. So in three years, we likely see some uh, piece of road demonstrations.
1: And that may be just a start.
2: We are actually now striving for jet fuel. Jet fuel probably the most advanced, and we are very close.
1: So far, the research here is uncovering promising results. And once some of the engineering hurdles are overcome, this lab just may be home to the next big thing, helping producers cash in on waste. Well, we're heading south after the break to get a check of a cotton harvest in the second largest cotton producing state in the country. We're off to Georgia next.
0: The Cotton Harvest Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Delta Pine, dedicated to cotton, committed to you.
1: Cotton harvest passed the halfway point this week. According to USDA, 5% was harvested as of Sunday, two points ahead of average, but four points behind 2022. That was nationally, but statewide, Georgia farmers are running behind at 46% complete, eight points behind normal and trails last year by 10 points. While harvest is behind, it was a tough start to the growing season, and that means farmers have really been running behind all year. This area of Southwest Georgia is home to three core crops, corn, peanuts, and cotton.
12: Cotton is very important to this area um, just because it adapts well and it's a very good rotation crop.
1: Neil Lee's family has tended to these soils since the 80s and he started farming here in 2001. And this year, it's one to remember.
12: This year, we started off, uh, it was cool, um, dry when we started planting.
1: But then toward the end of May, Lee says it stayed cool but turned extremely wet.
12: the end of May, we got a lot of rain. It was times we got five
3: to six inches at a time.
1: It wasn't just a shower here and there. Some of this farm ground was drowning from so much rain.
3: We had anywhere from nine to I think 12 inches in a week. I would say that we lost somewhere between probably seven and 10% of our crop.
1: Ethan Cody is the agronomist on this farm and he says the cool temps also stunted the growth early on.
3: I look to have a stand up Within six to eight days of planting we had some stuff that was stretched all the way out to you know 10 12 14 days
1: as the crop was recovering from too much rain and the cooler temperatures. The area then saw a sudden switch with a heat
12: wave hitting the crop. It was one of the hottest um, summers we had. That
3: I can ever remember
1: the heat this summer did help push the crop to maturity quicker. What was looking to be a delayed harvest is now right on time.
3: I would say our yields going to be all over the board, really depending on planting date, but on an average across, I'd say that we're going to be right, right at our normal average. I think there's going to be some, some phenomenal cotton this year, and we're also going to have some stuff that's, that's fairly disappointing.
1: Lee Farms hit the halfway mark on cotton harvest this week. While yields haven't been as good as Lee expected in some areas, it is on par with what they saw last year. And with no rain falling on these open bowls this fall, it's helping the quality of the crop.
12: This year, I think the dry land yields are going to be better than last year. And I think the um, irrigated yields are going to be better than last year.
1: But the one bonus growers in this area are seeing this year, bowls on the bottom of the plant.
3: It's always been said that the bottom crop is your money bowls. And most years, we don't really get to count on that fully. But I'm optimistic that it's going to provide a bump to our yields.
1: While the plant bug pressure was heavy early on, it was fairly tame during the growing season. And it's the damage done early from such a cool weather that cotton growers could be paying a price for at harvest this year.
3: That's one thing that I'm worried about with factoring into our total yield because that can be pretty detrimental. You may have some areas in a field that, that are doing three bales or better, but when you factor in the, the average for the total acres and 10% of those acres aren't there, that's gonna affect what you come out with.
1: As this cotton gets picked and then graded at the gin, the lack of rain later in the season is fueling better grades and quality. But with dampened demand for cotton at home and around the globe, Lee says they're not getting paid a premium on those good grades like they normally would.
12: I just wish more people would would wear more cotton and then put it in stores.
1: As Lee reflects back on 2023, it's an average year, but his plea for more consumers is to buy and support American-grown cotton. A natural fiber that he hopes will continue to be the fabric of our lives well we had a mix of it all this weekend wheat research pig manure to pavement even cotton as we wrap up our 2023 college road show this year thanks to everyone here at the university of illinois next week we're still road warriors bringing you the show from the missouri governor's conference on agriculture we hope that you'll tune in as we work to build on our tradition have a great weekend everyone
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed
1: by Farm Journal Broadcast.